Episode of God Network News, the podcast that tells you what God's doing around the world, not what CNN tells you, but what GNN tells you is going on in the world. If you're tired of listening to all of that crisis network news and you want to hear what God's doing, well, give us a listen. This podcast is proudly listed at podcastpickle.com. In this episode of GNN, uh, we will be continuing with our reading of chapters from the new book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. And I hope that you're enjoying listening to these chapters. And again, this is our gift to you, our faithful listeners, as a free audio book to you of this really fantastic, really exciting, new and innovative book that has come out by Brian Hogan. And again, in the show notes, you can find a hot link to where you can get your own hard copy of that if you wish. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 13, The Mother of All Moves. During that first year of language learning in Ulaanbaatar, We experienced the adventure and frustration of trying to raise three children, maintain a household, attend language school, build relationships with Mongolian neighbors and fellow missionaries, teach English to architects, and do it all in a post-communist country whose basic infrastructure was collapsing. During the final part of 93, the biggest worry facing the missionaries and fledgling church in Mongolia was the threat to end religious liberty through a constitutional amendment. A massive amount of prayer and some diplomatic pressure by the U.S. led to the failure of this measure, but the Buddhist lamas and communist politicians continued on in an unholy alliance to do anything they could to stop the gospel. Things were tense. But for us personally, creating a home in this strange land proceeded apace. One thing that helped us to bond with the people was our Mongolian names. Our Mongolian friends had renamed every member of our family. This turned out to be a big help in speaking a language that adds countless suffixes to the ends of names. Our English names just didn't work in Mongolian. My name was changed to Biamba, Saturday. Louise with Sitske, Flower. Melody translates directly as Oyunga. Alice became Tuya, Ray or Beam. And Molly got the prettiest name of all, Sarangedl, Moonlight. When we used these names, the locals would just melt. They were an instant door opener. Our plans to join Magnus and Maria in Erdenet by September fizzled. I had signed a one-year contract to teach for Monar Company, and our relationship with our mission agency changed. YWAM had joined an umbrella mission called Joint Christian Services International, JCS for short, for its work in Mongolia. We had tried to work within this 12-member partnership, but we ran into snags in defining our ministry. 
the director felt very strongly about limiting the scope of ministry to relief and development work, at least for the first five years. He kept pressuring us to abandon our plan to plant churches in Erdnet and to take up one of the JCS Mercy Ministry projects in the Gobi Desert instead. We reached an impasse and, after hours of prayer and soul-searching, decided not to continue under JCS auspices. Just like a shoe that doesn't fit, JCS was just not right for us. Almost immediately after making this decision, we ran into Rick Leatherwood on the street. He invited us to join his mission, Mongolian Enterprises International, and promised to send us to Erdenet. We agreed to join the formal language school for one semester in order to better master the grammatical structures of Mongolian. This, and the contract with Monar, seemed to point to February as a more likely date for our move. God seemed to be putting everything together for us to join Magnus and Maria Alphonse in Erdnet on our first anniversary in Mongolia, February 22, 1994. Magnus and Maria had done a terrific job of pioneering the church there. There were now five large house churches and more believers being baptized all the time. Magnus and Baida taught the word to Mongolian leaders in his home every week, and then each would pass on what she had learned to the house church she led. There were finally several young men and a few older women, but the bulk of new work needed to focus on breakthroughs into new groups. Our focus as we joined the work would continue to be on learning language, which accelerates the farther one is away from Ulaanbaatar's large expatriate community, and when you can immerse in the language without constant temptation to function in English, and cultural adaptation. We were all praying an older family like ourselves might be the key to appealing to someone beyond the teen girls who made up almost the entire congregation. We all knew that something had to change in the makeup of the group if a healthy, enduring, and reproducing church movement was to emerge. Yet, in the midst of this concern, there were so many signs of health amongst the believers in Erdnet. Magnus, Maria, and Baida had carefully discipled the new believers and taught them to pass on to their own disciples how to obey Jesus' commands. In fact, every facet of a walk with God was modeled for the Mongolians. First, the missionary would do something while the believers observed. Then they would assist the church planter doing the same thing together. Finally, the missionary would watch while the believer took over the task on her own. Many of those first believers became house church leaders, and Baida and Magnus modeled how to lead these discipling groups. They met as leaders to share how the churches were doing and to learn from the word insights to pass on in their groups. Over time, we developed a prayer guide to help the fellowships pray for the people groups of the former Soviet Empire. Every week, each house church would intercede for an unreached group in this booklet, complete with maps, pictures, and stories in Mongolian. From the very beginning, the disciples were steeped in God's heart for the nations. Moving anywhere outside Ulaanbaatar was quite an undertaking. We needed housing, supplies, furniture, and a convincing reason to be there. Our strategy for entering Erdenet was business. I pitched a plan to my employer, Monar Company Limited, to move our family to Erdenet to provide business consultation, to develop materials for learning language, and to provide private tuition from English classes. They were excited about the potential profits of an expansion in that direction. The fact that they were an architectural firm seemed inconsequential. They already had honey-making and gear production ventures, in addition to running a boutique and cafe, and they eagerly contracted with me for another year. 
Now that we had a Mongolian company behind us, Louise and I made another trip up to Erdnet to meet with the mayor and explore business and housing possibilities. I returned to secure our housing in January. Maria had a Mongolian friend, Zagda, whose sister found us an apartment. Although foreigners could not buy apartments, we were able to purchase the right to rent it from the widowed herdsman who had been awarded the apartment when his wife died. He couldn't live in town and keep his sheep alive in the countryside, so he took the local cash equivalent of a thousand dollars we offered and vacated the two-bedroom apartment on the ground floor. The location was perfect, right on the main road and just a few buildings away from our teammates. We were actually going to make it to Erdenet at last. Louise is fond of citing that we have moved 23 times in as many years of marriage. In spite of this statistic, moving our household is an activity we both loathe. Even moving across town in the States is full of stress and altogether too much work. Moving from one city to another in Mongolia is extremely involved, frustrating, and arduous. Here's how our frigid February three-day move from Ulaanbaatar to Erdnet played out. Day 1 February 17th. Inside the apartment, Louise packed our things into boxes. I went out to pick up our passports and train tickets. New visas and police stamps in each passport were required for the move, so I once again needed the services of Alder and Bat Jargal, young Christian businessmen fixers for foreigners. When I reached their office, I discovered they had slipped up and purchased our passenger tickets on the train to Erdnet for that very evening, but the cargo wagon carrying our stuff was not going until the following day. We had 14 people planning to go to Erdnet on Friday, and Alder had bought Thursday tickets. Rick and Laura Leatherwood and their four children, along with Helen Richardson, their nanny, were helping us on the move, and Magnus and Maria, the Swedish half of our church planning team, were also traveling home with our troop. I told Alder the tickets must be changed to a Friday, but he said that was impossible. I insisted he at least give it a try, and trudged home to give Louise the bad news. We started praying while we kept packing all day and almost finished. We had a goodbye dinner with missionary friends and went to bed not knowing whether we would be able to accompany our things to Erdnet the next evening. The next morning, I went out early to the Russian Cultural Center to collect a Russian Army bunk bed I had bought the girls for only $15.00. Cold War peace dividend? The Russian guy who'd sold me the bed wasn't there until the fourth time I went by the office. Meanwhile, the truck I'd ordered never arrived, but my helpers did, so two of us scrambled out to find a truck while everyone else began carrying 87 items, including large furnishings, down five flights of stairs with ten narrow turns. These guys took great care not to damage the furniture. Out at the field where trucks were parked hoping for work, I hired a truck and driver for the equivalent of $21. Back at the apartment building, we loaded everything up except the still-missing bunk bed and a desk my company had promised and raced to the train station. Porters wanting to help for a fee surrounded us. They roughly trundled all of our stuff off the truck and into the customs shed. These guys made that gorilla in the 1980s Samsonite commercials look gentle. Our furniture was never the same again. The customs official decided he had better things to do than weigh each item. Rail freight charge was about half a dollar per kilo. He estimated in our favor, 500 kilograms. He told us to come back at 5 o'clock to supervise loading it onto the train. So we went by Monar Company's office to pick up my desk and then back once more to the Russian Cultural Center to get the bunk bed. 
This time we were successful, and so back across town we went to the train station to add these items to our pile. While these were being weighed in, we met Alder. He'd done the impossible and changed our tickets that morning. Joy flooded over me. I was praising God for averting the disaster that sending everything up to Airdnet unaccompanied would have been. We paid off our truck driver and caught a taxi home. After a short wait, we gathered up the girls and hailed a cab for the train station. Louise, Laura, and Helen got the children, all seven of them, on board the train and into the coupés, a compartment with four bunks that sleeps four, in principle, while Rick and I kept a sharp eye out for thieves as the porters, for yet another fee, manhandled our stuff twenty meters into the cargo car. Additional damage was inflicted as I watched. I wondered too late if I could have paid more for special handling. I was further dismayed to see the only other cargo in this boxcar was coal. As they slid the cargo door closed, the train began to move, and Rick and I had to run like crazy alongside for several car lengths to reach the last passenger car and jump into the moving train. Breathless but on board, we walked through half a dozen crowded cars to reach our families. What a harrowing experience. As the kids noisily explored our car, we settled in for the long overnight trip. In Mongolia, the trains do a curious thing. They all meet up in Darhan, the second largest city, in the middle of the night, so passengers can transfer between the three major routes, Siberia, China, and Erdnet. For three hours, the Erdnet train sits next to the other two while vendors yell out their wares outside the windows. Normally accepted practice is to try to vainly to ignore the hubbub outside and continue sleeping, but I was worried our belongings would switch trains and head to Irkutsk or Beijing, so I ran back down the train to guard the cargo car the whole time they had the door open. I watched them shovel out some coal, but nothing else left that car while I was on duty. When they locked it up again, I headed sleepily back to my berth. On the clear and chilly morning of the 19th of February, at 8.40, we arrived at Erdenet, and I quickly hopped off the train and ran back to guard the cargo car again. But it had vanished. I panicked and ran back and forth until I found it again on the other end of the train. The engineer had reversed direction in Darhan in the middle of the night. That was standard, but I'd never before had the occasion to notice. Willing myself to stop hyperventilating and freezing my lungs, I noticed some believers from the church had lined up a truck and helpers. They all ran down to where I was climbing up into the doors of the train car. We carefully unloaded the cargo while the women and children caught the bus into town. Then the helpers piled onto our stuff in the back of the truck and left for our new apartment. Rick, Magnus, and I caught the last vehicle into town, which is about seven miles from the train station. The reason Erdnet's train station is so far out of town is communist paranoia. The Soviet Union discovered and exploited the copper deposit in Erdnet, and military policy dictated that danger always loomed in the form of invasion by train. The Soviets therefore laid different gauge rail than China to slow down the invading armies while they changed the axles and protected their precious asset in Erdnet by putting the station in the middle of nowhere. When we finally arrived at our apartment, we found the most of our things already inside. Other than damaged wood finish and cabinet doors knocked off their hinges, we had only a single casualty, a broken coffee mug. We took our friends around town sightseeing and got them settled into the hotel, and later that day unpacked our boxes. 
We had just barely begun to recover from the adventure of moving our family when we discovered it was going to be growing. A week after our arrival in Erdnet, Louise announced that we would be having a baby around the beginning of November. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 14. Power Encounter. The living God was preparing to visit Erdnet, but this was hardly going to pass unchallenged by the prince of the power of the air. We hadn't thought Satan was much threatened by our family's presence in town. We were wrong. About two months after we'd moved up from Ulaanbaatar, a man came to our door late one Sunday night and demanded money for our power bill. He looked really disreputable and offered no ID. We told him we'd ask our Mongolian friend about it and sent him away. We thought it just was another scam for vodka money. Then he came back the next Sunday night and tried to force his way in while Louise held the door and yelled. He retaliated by opening up our meter box on the landing outside the door and cutting off power for three days. We found out, while all our food rotted and we ate meals at friends' houses, the power bill for our apartment was a year and six months in arrears. We learned this man, whose name was Dawa, had not been paid his salary by the power company. The Erdnet Power Company was close to bankruptcy, so Dawa figured he could squeeze the rich foreigners for cash. The confusion over his identity turned this somewhat nasty man into an implacable enemy. Dawa, now enraged, was on a roll. He called the Erdnet Housing Authority, the agency that owns and controls all apartments in town, and accused us of purchasing our apartment for dollars from Zagda, the Mongolian friend whose name we'd foolishly mentioned to him. Since none of the buildings in Erdnet had yet been privatized since the fall of communism, this was a fairly serious allegation. But it wasn't true. A widower with twelve children actually had the right to rent for our apartment. The flat had been awarded to him as a bereavement benefit. However, since he had herds that needed shepherding in the countryside, he had no use for a place in the city. Zagda, as a go-between, had worked out an arrangement where we lease the right to rent from the herdsmen. The housing authority, without being bothering to check Dawa's facts, sent word to evict us and called the police to check our registration. Two officers came by to get our passports, telling us to appear at the police station to pick them up in two days. When I went to get the passports, the lady in charge of approving immigrants into Erdenet screamed at me for not registering with her the day we moved into town. I explained we'd been told it was unnecessary. They would come to us to register us. She then slapped a 20,000 Tugrik fine on me, about $50, and said she would have us evicted. She immediately added that she would accept English lessons in lieu of the fine. That night, Dawa came and turned on our power. He came in to inspect and counted every power outlet, light, and appliance, pulled out a calculator, and came up with a figure for the unpaid power. The meter had been broken, so he used an estimation method. I pointed out that half of the outlets were not functioning, but he didn't care. He then slapped us with a 57,000 Tugrik fine, about $120, when we protested that we had only lived here two months and could hardly be responsible for the whole 18 months of payment due, he told us that rich Americans could afford to pay. Overwhelmed, we started to pray. 
The next day, I had just begun my English lesson inside Citibank, where I had been teaching the tellers and other bank employees. Somehow, our trials came up during the lesson, and one of my students, an older woman whom I figured to be the cleaning lady, was more interested than others. She kept asking for more details and names. Finally, I asked my translator Gana why this woman was so interested in my problems. I think she wants to help you," she replied. I found to my surprise that this woman, who came to our evening class in a housecoat, was the president of the bank. She said she had control over Dawa's funds, and he would cease this attack on her teacher. The next morning, she got my power fine dropped. She talked to the big boss at housing, who said we were okay until June, when it would be discussed again. But his underling, Sukbot, the woman who'd ordered our eviction, defied him and turned our case over to the court anyway. She then went to the countryside for two months. Meanwhile, Dawa, thwarted by my student in his fundraising through fining, started calling the police and slandering and accusing us. He claimed we were running a bakery out of our kitchen and had Mongolian slaves baking and selling the bread. The Mongolian-owned bakery Magnus had started for the church was across town. Our only connection was that we bought our bread there. He then said that we were Christian workers who weren't engaged in any business at all, which was obviously false. Luckily, when the police confronted me with these stories, a newly found engineer friend from the copper mine spiritedly and articulately defended me. I went to see the vice mayor about our apartment problems, and he said he knew all about them. He lived in the next stairwell. He said not to worry; he would fix everything. I guess he did because when the old shepherd, our landlord, came into town to appear at court with Zagda, the court decreed in our favor. Orgil, my boss at Monar Company in Ulaanbaatar, called the police lady and smoothed things over. All that would be required for the return of our passports was a small face-saving fine, and Orgil picked that up. We'd seen an unsettling glimpse of the system's underbelly and corruption. Greed and envy are powerful strongholds in Mongolia and throughout the former communist world. Years of the Marxist-Leninist gospel had convinced the people that no one should have anything they didn't have. Many had advised us a bribe would make everything go away, but we'd managed to maintain our integrity and paid off no one. People had aided us out of friendship. Compassion and response to the vulnerable position we chose to take. We'd seen God powerfully intervene on our behalf, and the devil failed to thrust us out of Erdnet. It was clear once again our Father had put us there, and that no one could dislodge us without His leave. There is such a peace in knowing that we never felt a need for secrecy about why we were in Mongolia. We knew God had called us there, and not even the government had the power to evict us until God had accomplished His plans through us. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 15, April showers. Our team, which was just our family and Magnus and Maria Alphonse at this time, had spent the first few months of 1994 crying out to God in prayer to give us some kind of breakthrough. We were concerned that the church would continue to grow as it had been, gathering only teenaged girls. A huge church of mostly teenage girls was not what we had come to Mongolia for, nor was it what God wanted for the Mongolians. 
Our training had emphasized that we should seek to reach heads of households who would then be able to bring their families and friends into the kingdom. It was painfully obvious to us that our teenage disciples didn't fit the model. I wish we had been aware of another New Testament principle our training hadn't covered. Students of church planting movements have noticed that successful church planters start working with whoever is responding to God and seek to join the Father in what he is doing. By these principles, we were doing quite a bit better than it had appeared to us at the time. We searched for whatever might be holding back the older Mongolians from the gospel. Everywhere in the country the story was the same, except for the first batch of believers from right after Mongolia opened up. Only teens had been embracing God's offer. We knew that there was nothing wrong with the gospel message itself. Could this trend have something to do with the translation? In new mission fields, peoples tend to reject the message when it's presented in alien cultural forms. We wondered if this wasn't happening for all our Mongolian friends over 20. The translator of the Mongolian New Testament had to choose a word for God. Mongolians had a common word for God, but he rejected it for referring to the Almighty because the Tibetans had appropriated it when they brought Tibetan Buddhism into Mongolia in the early 17th century. The translator felt that the Mongolian word, Borkhan, was sullied irreparably by Buddhist usage. In a musty, out-of-print dictionary, he found a term he felt would work. It was a term no living Mongolian seemed to have ever heard. The translator, satisfied that he had solved any confusion that the name might bring, then used Yurtensenitsen, or Lord of the Universe, exclusively throughout his Mongolian New Testament to refer to God. Through extensive interviews with non-teenaged Mongolians exposed to the gospel through the Jesus film and other means, we began to realize that many reacted to Yurtensenitsen as if it were science fiction. It just didn't sound true or real to them, and it made the God of the Bible seem like a foreign import rather than the God of all the earth. Borchan, on the other hand, was the generic term for deity. It seemed to correspond to the English word God in being used for anything from small household idols to the creator of heaven and earth. Surely this term was as redeemable for God terminology as our English word, Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary finds the origin of the word God from a Germanic word, God, pronounced as Gott. The pagan ancient Germanic tribes got the word from Vedic Hindu roots. Since their missionaries had redeemed a local pagan term that we are still using, we could see no problem in repeating the pattern in Mongolia so Mongolians could hear and understand God. Besides, in his excellent book, Eternity in Their Hearts, Don Richardson pointed out that whenever someone speaks of the uncreated creator, they are speaking of him, since there can only be one. Our team concluded that we had to change the term for God if we were going to see the broader response for which everyone was praying. For several months, we had been moving the church family to use a more literal translation of the New Testament. An old Mongolian dialect version had recently been released at the end of a circuitous process. 
London Missionary Society missionaries among the Mongolian Buryat tribe across the Russian border in 1846 had translated the entire Bible, and the New Testament had been revised as Gunzel's Revision and reprinted in the 1950s by Scandinavian Alliance missionaries. In 1994, the Witness Lee sect reprinted their work in modern Mongolian Cyrillic. The sect didn't change the word itself. They just added advertisements for their services, which we happily tore out. The believers found this red hardback Bible, with its old-fashioned dialect, tougher to read, but loved how God's words spoke to their hearts. Not only was the translation more accurate, the Red Bible employed the Mongolian term Borchan. It allowed us to gradually shift to a more accurate terminology for other concepts, prayer, worship, sin, Satan, baptism, etc., rather than to use words from the other translation that never communicated biblical ideas correctly. Early in April, we realized that we were probably the only team in the nation that could get away with experimenting with God's name. We were too far out in the sticks to attract the kind of backlash from other workers and churches that this move was sure to generate. We knew it would be controversial, but we counted on the two overnight train trips to act as a buffer for the rebukes that this move would certainly trigger. We met with the leaders of the church in Erdnet and explained our thinking to them. They had been using both terms for a while within the Erdnet church, but bravely agreed to start using Borchan for all public preaching. God was speaking to us in this, and we were confident that we were praying according to God's will when we asked him to help us to reach other age groups and males. We just didn't know how to begin. We had relationships with professionals and their families, but when these people met the church members, they pulled back from commitment. It came across as a large and exciting girls' club, and it turned others off before they were around enough to experience the life and joy there. We were acutely aware that we needed God to do something to bump us out of the rut we had inadvertently fallen into. Finally, along with the spring thaw and new life we saw around us on the hills around Erdenet, we saw God's answer to our pleas. What began in April 1994 we would normally call revival, but in a church a little over a year old, that term seems wrong. I started calling the intense outpouring we were experiencing Vival. Revival for the first time. Anyway, call it a burst of insight and growth or whatever, things suddenly got extremely exciting. It started with a video of the church in South Korea praying. We lugged our small combination TV video player, the only one in the church, over to Magnus and Maria's apartment to play the tape for the believers. We assigned time slots and watched it in shifts. The sight of their Korean brethren praying so fervently electrified each group of girls. They had never seen anything like it. The results almost scared us. A deep spirit of repentance came over all who watched, and low, racking sobs filled the room. These young Mongolians spontaneously fell on their faces before God and wept. Then they began to pray as they'd never prayed before. The same thing happened with each group. We were stunned. God was at work here. It brought home that our participation is a privilege and a reward for obedience, not a prerequisite for the moving of the Lord. 
But this was just the warm-up for what was to come. What we had prayed for had begun. The families of many of our young girls were about to come to Jesus. Here's how. Missionaries from Sweden had planted a cell group church in Abakan, Siberia, a city just over the Russian border north and west of us. It had grown to more than 70 cells and a Bible school. A team of second-year Russian Bible students, each a cell leader, felt led to do their outreach helping Swedish missionaries in Mongolia. The Swedish missionary running the Abakan church and school had pastored a church in the same Swedish village of Edsbyn, where Magnus and Maria had lived and worked. He asked Magnus if this short-term team could come and work under our direction. One of our prayers had been for the planting of a church among Erdnet's Russian population. We knew it would limit our effectiveness to focus on more than one ethnic group, so we had asked God to send someone for the Russians. So it was an easy call to make. We faxed our acceptance of the Bible School Outreach Team. Six women from the former Soviet Union arrived in April at the Erdnet train station. The most remarkable thing to us was how they all smiled. They were the first smiling Russians that we, or any of the Mongolians, had ever seen. They shared in our house church gatherings and with the church's leadership. They prayed and people were filled with the Holy Spirit, freed from demonic oppression, healed, and saved. The leaders of our church were affected in two big ways. They became really enthused about the small group church principles they'd been taught, because in the Russian cell church growth they could see and experience an example of success that made sense to them. The other surprise was the way the Russian team brought a new experience of the Spirit. Right away our provisional elders, or elders-to-be, as we called them, Bayera, Odgetl, and Zorgo, began speaking in tongues. For Bayera and Odgetl, it was more of a reignition since they had experienced this gift the past summer but had not really continued in it. Now they were all extremely excited and eager to see this Holy Spirit baptism spread to the deacons and the rest of the believers. And as the team continued to meet and pray for believers, the Holy Spirit was poured out in a new way, and many who had experienced only a trickle of his gifts before started speaking in tongues and prophesying for the first time. Our team was puzzled about this. We had prayed on many occasions that the Mongolian believers would speak in tongues, but nothing much had happened. Then, as soon as the Russian girls prayed, everybody started praising God in other tongues. Magnus and I took one of the house church leaders aside and asked her what the difference was between our prayers and theirs. She replied that until the Russians came, the Mongolian believers had no idea what tongues were or what we had been talking about when we mentioned this gift. When we protested that we had prayed over her in tongues on several occasions, she looked surprised. Oh, she exclaimed, I thought you were just talking fast in English or Swedish. Then it dawned on us. The Russians had modeled tongues for the Mongolians as we had, but their modeling had been received. All our believers spoke some Russian because it was required in school. When the Russian girls switched from praying in Russian to praying in tongues, Everyone heard the difference and understood at last what we had been teaching. That was all it took for them to let go and allow God's gift to flow through their mouths. Without speaking any Mongolian, the Russian team was somewhat limited in their opportunities for effective ministry. Healing prayer for the sick seemed to be a strong area for them, so we sent them into the Gerer suburbs with a translator to look for sick people. Their first stop was the Gerer of Tufshin's grandmother, who we knew was handicapped. 
Tufshin and his wife Zagda had been Magnus and Maria's best friends in Erdnet for over a year. His grandparents were divorced, both remarried and living in different suburbs of Erdnet. His grandfather had recently believed and had been attending our new believers class. The Russians started with his grandmother and her new husband. She was lame in one leg, it dragged while she crutched around, and he was almost completely deaf. Both of them were healed when the Russians prayed. She threw down her crutch and did a Mongolian dance with him. He no longer needed his hearing aid. The two overjoyed old folks then begged the team to go to another gear and pray for a grandson who was mute. The team thought that it was a young child, so they were surprised to meet a young man of twenty who had lost the power of speech years before. When they prayed, the young man started speaking in tongues. An unbeliever in the crowd that had gathered said the Mongolian equivalent of, Heck, he can't even speak Mongolian. The young man broke off his ecstatic praise and retorted, Of course I can speak Mongolian. With each miracle, the crowd grew larger. The Mongolian translator kept responding to questions from the multitude about who was doing these healings. For the first time, they heard that Borchan had come and was healing them. The good news was making sense. Finally, people were both hearing Mongolian terms that carried the Bible's meanings and seeing God's powerful seal of approval on his word. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me bringing the Gentiles to God by my message, and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way I have fully presented the good news of Christ. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. Romans 15, 18-20 in other dwellings, a girl with poor vision started seeing better, and two children, one eleven years old who had never walked, took their first steps. A person who had scores of problems was delivered from demons while the Russians prayed. Tuvshin's grandfather heard reports about these miracles in his new believers class that evening, and he called out that among those healed were his grandson and ex-wife. God had decided to get this family's attention. One morning I took the Russian team on a tour of Erdnet. I saw a side of Mongolian men I'd never seen before. They really act like wolves towards the young, pretty Russian girls. One reason for the Russian frowns, I suspect. We ended up at the hilltop Russian-Mongolian Friendship Monument overlooking the entire city from the east where two huge, angular hands offer up a crown to Jesus, the King of Kings. Well... Not exactly. The object in the hands was a gear, and meant to symbolize industry and mining. But I believe God designed it, and the Soviets never realized it would become the symbol for the Church of Erdnet. From this commanding vantage point, the Russians and I interceded in prayer for Erdnet, and waged war against the strongholds of Satan in the city. God led me to pray for a house church to begin in District 2 within two months. I explained to the Russians that this district and District 1 were the only two areas that had completely resisted the planting of any fellowships. They really went to work in prayer over each one of these districts, each arrayed almost directly under our gaze. After our tour in spiritual warfare, the Russians came to our apartment to design a flyer on our computer. They wanted to announce an evangelistic meeting for Erdnet's Russian community, about 2,500 people. 
They had planned dramas, songs, and sharing. They were also going to pray for the sick. We had a lot of fun designing the flyer in two languages and posting it all over the Russian district of Erdina. The girls took some to the Russian consulate and ended up preaching to the workers there. When the big night came, it more than fulfilled our expectations. The rented hall was packed with Russians of all ages and young Mongolian believers. Mongolians and Russians acting together performed skits that presented the gospel. We were stunned to see these Russian people drinking in the good news presented by Mongolians. By all strategic thinking, this shouldn't have worked at all. The Mongolians had been the Russians' younger brothers for seven decades, and the two peoples didn't even speak with each other if they could avoid it. Also, the fact that the Mongolians had access to the gospel for only three years, in Erdnet only one, while Russia had become a Christian nation in the ninth century, made this event even more astounding. God was doing an amazing thing before our eyes. The crowd applauded thunderously as Jesus rose from the dead in a skit, followed by the impassioned preaching in Russian and an invitation. Over 40 Russians responded, wanting to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. Russian and Mongolian evangelists prayed with them and told them to stick around afterwards. Then the sick came forward. Some came forward for sick relatives who couldn't come themselves. They gave scarves to be prayed over and then taken home and laid on the sick relatives. It may sound strange, but it is biblical. Acts 19, verse 12. And it worked. People were being healed and began to testify. It was in Russian, so I only know the ones that were translated for me. One albino blind boy had his sight partially restored, and another boy had his near-blind eyes opened. An older woman with spinal troubles was bending down and touching her toes for the first time in years. There were others, stomach, head pain, etc., but I missed out on the details. What I couldn't miss was how God was moving on the Russians of Erdnet. Those saved demanded another meeting the next night, which was right when the team would be leaving Erdnet. They had to bring their luggage and go straight to their train from the hall. When the time came, the new Russian believers brought friends who'd missed the first meeting. They were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. The Russian team managed to get three Russian apartments volunteered for hosting house churches. One of these new groups was in District 2, and many of the newly saved Mongolians also turned out to be from this district. Talk about quickly answered prayer. Time ran out for the team of Russians. Their car arrived to take them to their train. On their way out the door, one of the new Russian believers called out, Who will pastor us? The leader of the team had pointed to Magnus, and Magnus pointed to me. After a year of studying Mongolian, I found myself in the difficult position of leading a church where I didn't share a language in common with my congregation. Then the Russian team hopped into the car and raced to catch the Irkutsk train, making it just in time. On the ride to the station, Magnus asked them what we should do next, and they said, We don't know. God will show you. So the new baby Russian church joined the Mongolian church at our celebration service, where the house churches gather for corporate worship, on May the 1st. We found this highly ironic, since May Day was the big Soviet communist holiday. I just know the father enjoyed this joke. We were overwhelmed, but grateful. Problems like unexpected church births are a joy to have.
Hallelujah. 